is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where many people, in fact, most Americans believe that the greatest threat to our greatness at the moment is not the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Uh, it is not the discussion of the don't say gay bill in Florida. It's not even the debate about the claims of a stolen election in 2020. The biggest threat to the country right now, certainly the biggest issue in poll after poll after poll before the electorate is inflation. Why? Well, because it impacts everybody, and you can see it every day. You buy almost anything. Uh, so how do you fix it? There's a great line in the new book, Inflation, by uh, Steve Forbes with uh, Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames. There's a great line in there in where Steve Forbes asks, how do you, governments control inflation? And he says, mostly very badly. So we deserve something better than that here in the United States. Steve Forbes needs no introduction. He is a two-time, very credible, very substantive presidential candidate, uh, the uh, head of Forbes Publishing, and the author of numerous best-selling books. His book, new book, Inflation, is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. So, Steve, what country has done the most notable job of coping with the problem of inflation? Uh, well, over uh, history, you've had uh, several. Unfortunately, as you indicated, most governments that uh, do it very badly, uh, scapegoating and things like that, not getting to the source. But amazingly, uh, we did it in the early 1980s, extremely painfully after the terrible inflation of the 1970s under Ronald Reagan and Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Federal Reserve at the time. Uh, broke the back of inflation that had sent interest rates to 21 percent, <throat> prices rising 13 to 15 percent a year, far worse than we're, what we've been experiencing so far this time, and they uh, they they killed they killed it. Uh, after World War II, both Germany and Japan had uh, hyperinflations. Uh, they ended it when they tied it to uh, the gold-backed dollar, so uh, it can be done. But uh, most of the time, uh, nations simply uh, blame others. We point out in Roman times, they blame Christians. In medieval times, they blame witches. Uh, President Nixon in the early 70s blamed Arabs, uh, greedy oil uh, producers. Uh, today, Joe Biden belabors uh, the oil industry, blames meat packers, chicken processors, everybody but the government. And uh, the uh, one of the questions here about inflation is uh, how, to what extent, it's linked to the spendathon, the runaway spending that has taken place under uh, Joe Biden, with the support uh, of the uh, narrow majorities who's been able to scrape together in Congress. Uh, do you think that if spending were brought under control quickly, immediately? that it would help to stop uh, or maybe even roll back some of the inflation? Well, yes, uh, because when we have that kind of binge spending, as we saw in the past year, how was it financed? A lot of it was financed by the Federal Reserve, buying government bonds. How did they pay for those bonds? By creating money out of thin air. 
Uh, the Fed will call up a dealer like Goldman Sachs and say, we want to buy a billion dollars of government bonds. Goldman says, fine, here are the bonds. And how does the Fed pay for them? They credit Goldman's account with $1 billion. Where do they get that money? Out of thin air. They just create it. It's the ultimate ATM. So uh, the uh, spending itself doesn't do it. It's how they finance it that does it. And so uh, as the book points out, there are two kinds of inflation. One is what we've just been discussing, the government uh, creating too much money, undermining its value, uh, devaluing the dollar. That hurts, and that's the most dangerous one long term. The other kind is non-monetary inflation. That is things like you have a bad weather, a drought, or a bad government policy like rent controls, which hurts new construction, which sends prices up ultimately, or what we've been going through with the pandemic and its aftermath, disrupting very intricate global supply chains. And unfortunately, Michael, this government has made that supply chain, uh, that non-monetary inflation worse by waging war against the oil and gas industry, putting in numerous new regulations which artificially raise the cost. So you're getting it on both sides, both on the government raising costs and the Federal Reserve undermining the dollar. Is there a way you think that uh, because, again, the polling is is stunning is uh, by far inflation is listed by American electorate as the number one issue facing this election. Uh, Joe Biden seems to be offering nothing uh, beyond his initial response, which is this is just transitory. It's only temporary. Now he's saying it's somebody else's fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. Uh, is there a way that a Republican message could be clear and comprehensible about fixing this? Well, I think so. Uh, two things. One is leave the economy alone. Stop putting artificial burdens on it. Stop artificially raising the price of uh, gasoline and the like. And number two, or in parallel, tell the Federal Reserve to preserve, stop trashing the dollar. Preserve the integrity of the dollar. We've done it before. Stop printing the money. In fact, they should start selling some of those bonds they bought, reduce the money supply, and so you have a stable dollar, as we saw in the 80s, combined with low tax rates, which this administration seems oblivious to, and this economy would take off like a rocket. The American people are as entrepreneurial as ever, and uh, but every time we start to crawl out of this uh, slowdown from the pandemic, by golly, the administration comes and slaps something else on. And uh, they make gestures saying, oh, we're going to fight gasoline prices and stuff like that, but they don't go, they don't remove the barriers to producing more oil and gas. I mean, they, they, we had Biden before the Ukrainian invasion begging Putin to increase his oil output. <laughs> and How nutty yes. is that in immoral? Well, there, there is that, of course, and there's plenty of nuttiness around. A, a number of people... Uh, including yourself in the book, uh, you mentioned the possibility for some countries stricken with inflation uh, being able to expedite the recovery by returning to a gold standard. And you say, and it's, I'm surprised to read it, and the book is called Inflation. It's by Steve Forbes and colleagues. And uh, you say that it's actually more doable, less unthinkable 
than people might suspect to return the country to a gold standard. Is that a viable option? Uh, the answer is yes. Unfortunately, the economics profession has a version of cancel culture. They refuse to even consider a gold standard, even though for 180 years of our existence, we had a gold standard from the 1790s to the early 1970s. And during that time, the United States, and having a stable money is crucial, we, we had the greatest economic growth rates in history. In the 50s and 60s, when we had a gold standard, uh, we averaged over 4% a year. Since we went off the gold standard, those growth rates have fallen by a third. So going from four and a quarter percent down to two to two and a half, two and three quarters percent doesn't sound like much, but you do that over 50 years and it is devastating. For example, household uh, median household income today is about sixty-seven, sixty-eight thousand dollars. If we'd maintain our historic growth rates, which we did under a gold standard, that median household income would be $110,000. That's extraordinary. We will get back to more ideas and implications with the author of Inflation, not the reality, but the book. Uh, that's Steve Forbes with Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames, posted at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back with Steve Forbes. Michael Medved show. Uh, the new book by Steve Forbes is called Inflation. And when you recognize uh, how long it takes to put a book together and to get it published, uh, there's actually a little bit of prophecy here in bringing this book out at this moment, when largely because of the gas prices that everybody knows about and feels, Americans list inflation as the number one problem facing the United States of America. We're just talking for a moment about um, the gold standard and how well that worked for the United States when it was there. And the economy hasn't totally cratered since then, but it has definitely slowed down. So, Steve, do you believe that a candidate running for president today or running for U.S. senator uh, could, could get traction on calling for a gold standard, or is that ship sailed? No, I think uh, it can happen. It's going to take a lot of uh, patience because, unfortunately, in the economics profession, uh, they don't. it's just enshrouded in myth. And the reason you go to a gold standard is very basic. It keeps its intrinsic value better than anything else on Earth. Not perfect, but better than anything else, silver, copper, whatever. And so it's like a yardstick, and all the gold standard means is that dollar keeps a very stable value. Used to be, it's hard to believe today, $35 an ounce. So you could today set it at $1,900 or $2,000 an ounce. It's very simple. When it goes above 2000 you reduce the money supply. If it goes below 2000 you increase the money supply. As we point out in the book, it's very, very simple. But they've uh, shrouded myth that it causes depressions, locusts, 
acne. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, it works. And uh, if we, and I think the key is just getting a discussion again, taking out the way the cancel culture and economics and saying, okay, you may think it's uh, not a good idea. Let's have a debate. Let's see what the virtues are, what the downside is. And uh, I think uh, that would be a very healthy debate. And even if you don't go to a gold standard, I mean, Alan Greenspan for years uh, followed the gold price when he was ahead of the reserve uh, very closely. Uh, so we didn't have a formal standard. But until the late 90s, uh, for about 12 years, we had an informal one. Unfortunately, he lost sight of it around 2000 when uh, gold started to move up. He didn't react to it. But uh, it, has, it's had, it has credence. So uh, it's a measure of, of gold is like that yardstick. It's like a, a ruler with 12 inches or a clock with 60 minutes. And money works best when it has a fixed value, just like you don't have to worry about when you buy a gallon of gasoline. It doesn't change size each day. You buy a pound of cheese. You don't have to worry whether it's 16 ounces one day, 18 the next, 12 the day after. Uh, well, money works best when it has a fixed value. Always has. When we were grappling with inflation before, and you tell this story in the book, and the book, again, is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com, you, you um, were talking about the success that was enjoyed by Paul Volcker, who was head of the Federal Reserve, and by President Reagan. But that came after a very painful increase in interest and a resulting recession that uh, also caused uh, severe losses to the Republicans in the off-year election of 1982, which many people forget about. Reagan came back, of course, and won a landslide victory in 84. Is there any likelihood, in other words, if, if we go into a recession, which many people are foreseeing, could that right. actually end up being a blessing for Joe Biden, do you think, who's struggling with his presidency now? by making uh, it look no, like... I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Uh, uh, going back to uh, Volcker and Reagan, <clears throat> the reason that recession in 19, the early 80s was so severe was that the government did not effectively fight inflation for 12 or 14 years. So it took something absolutely drastic to uh, finally curb it. If we had uh, done like we could do today, some very basic measures like the stop increasing the money supply, uh, you could do it uh, fairly easily without a gut-wrenching recession. Part of the problem with the Fed, as we explain in the book, is that it believes you fight inflation not by keeping a stable value of the dollar, but by increasing unemployment. That's why you hear all this talk about, oh, can we get a soft landing? That's Fed speak for slowing the economy down. They think people buying things causes inflation. And so uh, they, they, they hope they can increase inflation a little bit and curb the price increases. But uh, you don't have to throw people out of work. Uh, all you have to do is, again, have a stable value for the dollar. And the sooner you do it, uh, the easier it is. So you have two kinds of inflations. Again, one, when you have disruptions like we had from the pandemic, if you leave the economy alone, it will heal itself and recover. But unfortunately, Washington's not doing that. And the Federal Reserve preserving the integrity, the stable value of the dollar. 
And uh, you don't have to jack up interest rates to the stratosphere, but that's what they're doing already. The 30-year mortgage has gone from 2.5% to over 5%. As you know, most people have floating mortgages, and when those rates are reset, a lot of people are going to find, oops, <laughs> we're getting squeezed, not just in the shopping mall or the pump, gas pump, but uh, the monthly mortgage payment is suddenly going to be taking a move upward. What about the tax rate and the uh, the bracket creep, which was part of the problem last time, and this being tax season and you being one of the leading uh, promoters of the idea of a flat tax and tax simplification, which would save so much time and money for so many Americans. Isn't one of the problems for inflation that a lot of middle-class people will find their taxes going up even if they don't raise the rates because they'll be in higher brackets? That's right. And even though they supposedly adjust the brackets for inflation, uh, I guarantee you with uh, the prices in the marketplace going up, even if your salary goes up, it, one, it's not going to match what uh, for most people what is happening in the marketplace. But also, even with the adjustments, you still end up paying more taxes. So, yes, your tax burden is going to go up. Uh, you're going to pay more for buying things. And, and also, because people don't really understand why this is happening, they see it happening, they're confused by it, and uh, it leads to uh, anxiety, worry, and politicians jump on it by scapegoating. Well, this is uh, look is anything but that. It actually gives you a deeper understanding of the history, the causes, and the future for inflation. Uh, inflation, what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it by Steve Forbes, Nathan Lewis, and Elizabeth Ames. Steve, it's always great to speak to you, and actually your clarity, I think, gives a lot of Americans a great deal of hope. Is there hope uh, because of Elon Musk taking over Twitter? We'll talk about that epical event or non-event coming up on The Medved Show. Medved show uh, is it the end of civilization as we know it is it a threat comparable to Putin's autocracy and butchery that Elon Musk is uh, continuing his uh, complicated faltering and wildly controversial effort to take over Twitter and what is this really about a uh, Katie tour of MSNBC says uh, that uh, this is one of the biggest issues facing the world right now. Uh, this is clip 10. Listen. There are real and devastating consequences for using that platform to lie. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it. We've seen yes. it happen. I, I wonder... You know, when talking about this, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. Oh, Elon Musk wants to yeah, buy it. But sure. there are massive 
life and globe altering, altering consequences for just letting people mm -hmm. run wild on the thing? Uh, globe altering consequences to letting people run wild on the thing. Uh, <laughs> there's this, uh, there's a piece in the Bulwark, uh, which uh, by Jonathan Last. And uh, he doesn't have the same, I think, estimation about the significance of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. He says, let's pretend just for a moment that Twitter decided to sell and Elon Musk was the sole private owner of that hell site starting tomorrow. Would Musk make Twitter either awesome or awful? The answer is, how would anyone be able to tell? Twitter, he says, is the worst place on earth. The antimatter universe analog, analog to Disney World. It is a virtual space where kindness, reason, manners, intelligence, style, and productivity go to die. There's no reason that anyone, anywhere, should be on Twitter unless they work in a field where having access to information a few minutes ahead of the general public is a necessity. For anyone else, literally every man, woman, and bot in America, life would be materially improved by getting off Twitter. Uh, and and then part of what he says is uh, concerning this question about censorship on Twitter and what's going to be allowed into Twitter or not. He um, he makes a, a, a case saying that um, basically uh, Twitter is a so corrupt and so negative that it makes no difference at all who actually is running it. He says, uh, Twitter mobs can't hurt bad actors. They only punish innocents or people who make uh, one-off mistakes. Justine Sacco had her life ruined by Twitter. A guy like Mike Cernovich will never pay any sort of price for saying vile things on Twitter. The interesting thing to me about all of this is the question of uh, uh, how much and over what you will have censorship. You can't have no censorship at all because obviously there are legal liabilities if you put on, for instance, child pornography or the advocacy of pedophilia. Those are things you can't do in America right now. Is that going to change? Should it change? Uh, there is uh, this also on the other side, and uh, this is another conservative point of view, Jonathan V. Last, who says there's no reason for anyone to ever be on Twitter, is one point of view. Another point of view from a distinguished conservative who's been a frequent guest on this show, from Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, he says, a year after being named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Elon Musk is attempting to acquire Twitter. To listen to Musk's critics, you'd believe it's an act almost on a par with Hitler invading Poland not long after being named Time's Man of the Year in 1938. A writer for the left-wing website Salon worried that a Musk takeover Twitter uh, would enable fascism in America. A New York University journalism professor lamented that the posting on Twitter with a threat of Musk looming like a partying, it would be like, feels like partying at a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. In other words, just before the Nazi takeover. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich warned, this is what oligarchy looks like. And so on and on. 
In fact, uh, there is this, Danielle Moody, who is a Democratic strategist, who are all socialists speaking on NBC, and talking about the danger of Elon Musk. Uh, listen, clip 19. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like, an opportunity for him to have no consequences, to have no flags for people just to be able to do whatever it is and say whatever they want, with regardless of what kind of um, uh, harm that it causes. So I think that this is something that folks really need to be paying attention to, because I think that Elon Musk buying Twitter or creating this quote-unquote arena would be problematic. Okay, it's, it's so difficult, the level of overstatement. And, and then again, uh, some of the conservative statements about how glorious this change would be. Given the fact that there are so many alternatives to Twitter, uh, even now, before Elon Musk is there, would it really be a, a dawning of a new age of uh, public discourse showing an improvement? Uh, Senator Ted Cruz seems to think so. Uh, this is Senator Cruz, clip 21. This battle right now between Elon Musk and tw Twitter, I think it is one of the most important moments for free speech in decades. Uh, this is a testing moment where big tech keeps getting more and more brazen, saying we can control everything you say, we can control everything you hear, we can control everything in your feed, we can control everything you listen, we can silence every view we don't like, we can only amplify the views we like. And suddenly Elon Musk came in and, and is threatening to tip over the apple cart. Okay. I, I Again, the idea that there are no competitors for Facebook and Twitter right now is blind. And uh, remember, Trump was going to be doing one himself, what is it, Truth Social, uh, which hasn't worked out so well. But uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, Twitter is uh, such a necessary and vital item in our personal lives and in our collective consciousness. Uh, Kevin O'Leary had this to say. Uh, this is clip 17. The biggest risk for shareholders here, whether you believe in the free speech issue or not, is if Musk goes away. Then they're back in the same miserable place they are now. You know, there's Dante's hell. At the very bottom of that is Twitter. This has been a horrific place to try and grow a business. It needs change. It needs the whacking stick. It needs everybody cleaned out of there. And I think, frankly, if you ask me about free speech and who should be canceled, who's not, the reason this thing is underperformed is they've tried to do this curation by canceling voices and losing millions of followers. This Kevin, is a business. Okay, again, what what he suggests is, uh, again, what I think most people would instinctively suggest, which is let the market work. The uh, best solution for bad speech is more speech, not trying to get the government to control it.
uh, 1-800-955-1776. So what is it exactly that uh, Elon Musk has said that should make him somehow unsuitable as an owner for Twitter, which has um, hardly been something that uh, most people would say that has improved understanding and communication and a sense of community in our society. 1-800-955-1776. We'll be right back with more. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, with all of the controversy about social media here in the United States and the standards and censorship and free speech, uh, there's something that uh, is going on involving the free market that you probably know about, but you should know more about because it could actually benefit you a great deal. And that is the idea of high tech and continuing success of high tech and high tech startups and uh, the kinds of breakthroughs that make sometimes even those aspects of our life that we take for granted now seem uh, dated because they involve a more exciting uh, and, and broader future. And uh, that's why you ought to go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner for Our Crowd. And you can get every week sent to you the very latest in high-tech startups here in the United States, and particularly uh, the startups in what's been called Startup Nation uh, Israel. The opportunity for investments that can change your life for the better, even with uh, relatively small amounts to invest, are very, very real. Go to uh, the... Uh, label for our crowd, the banner that is there on our website at michaelmedved.com, and uh, get free the latest information on the kinds of companies that are uh, proposing to change our world for the better. And uh, look, Jonathan Last has a, um, <laughs> a strong feeling about what really is involved with Twitter he says people are worried and some people are excited about Musk bringing all of the mouth-breathing racists, the neo-Nazis, and assorted deplorables back from Gab and Parler and Getter and welcoming them into Twitter. Well, would this be bad for the average user's experience? Probably. Would you, as a power user of Twitter, even notice the effect of such a change? I kind of doubt it. Look at it this way, he writes. Being a regular participant on Twitter is the equivalent of drinking a cocktail made of liquid plumber and battery acid every day. Would that cocktail be worse if someone also peed in it? Well, I guess it would in some sort of theoretical metaphysical sense, he writes, but your GI tract wouldn't know the difference. It's getting destroyed either way. And even if Elon Musk bought Twitter, which, again, he probably isn't going to do, writes Jonathan Last, he wouldn't be able to do to the platform what everybody fears and hopes, because you cannot run a mass audience social platform without some sort of content moderation. 
do away with all the moderation and you get 4chan. You must have some form of moderation, otherwise the users leave. Is that wrong? Is that outrageous? Uh, and uh, Brian Stelter, a commentator on media for CNN, uh, says that uh, allowing free speech, so-called, on Twitter would be disastrous. Why? Uh, here's what he had to say, clip 15. Over the weekend, the Twitter board adopting a so-called poison pill provision, trying to drive Musk back from his hostile takeover bid. The poison pill would essentially release more shares at a cheaper price to other shareholders. That would make a takeover a lot less desirable for Musk, since his stake would be diluted. The tech titan spent a lot of the weekend trolling Twitter right on Twitter, in one case amplifying a suggestion that his bid would only be rejected if the system is rigged. We've seen that kind of rhetoric before. It's very Trumpian. Twitter stock is up. They put the poison pill, as you mentioned, on Friday. That was a stock market holiday, so the market was not closed. So, so the market was closed. So this is the first time we're seeing investors' reactions to the pill, and they seem to like it, which indicates they are not necessarily in Elon Musk's camp. No, people don't want to play in the gutter. Most people don't want to send out their kids to play in the gutter. Twitter's tried to clean it up somewhat. Still, mm. still got mm -hmm. still a lot of complaints from a lot of people about how Twitter does that. And I think if you're if you're a random user that gets suspended for no good reason, you feel that, and that's a big deal, and that's a big problem. But I, the argument that make Twitter more chaotic yep. would seem to be a losing argument from an investor point of view. Okay, and then. Uh, uh, Rockstar Greg Tomlin asks a question about the dangerous views that we keep hearing uh, being imputed to Elon Musk. And uh, there is this. Um, in a recent interview, he talked about what the greatest threat to civilization really was in his eyes. And no, it wasn't uh, the takeover or domination of social media by one particular point of view. Here is what uh, the uh, man of the year from last year and the man of the hour right now in terms of controversy actually had to say. Clip 18. Pull the camera back and just think you're a father now of seven uh -huh. surviving kids. And, and well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to set a good example because the birth rate on Earth is so low that we're facing civilizational collapse unless the birth rate re re uh, uh, returns to a sustainable level. Yeah, you've talked about this a lot, that depopulation is a big problem, uh, and we, 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 yes. people don't understand Population collapse is, is uh, one of the biggest threats to the future of human civilization, and that is what is going on right now. You know, he's, of course, right about that, and, uh, and that is a point of view that actually should be out there and promoted. Uh, just to end this, um, the, the, the idea that, uh, that, Elon Musk is going to go forward and be able to make this uh, huge change in our lives by taking over Twitter. I think it's uh, number one, unlikely, and number two, not nearly as significant as people suggest. And uh, has the deplatforming of Donald Trump, which of course is the most controversial thing that Twitter has ever done, has that hurt that business? Uh, probably. Has that changed the political world? Has it changed Donald Trump's viability at all? No, it's given him 
encouragement in trying to start his own media alternatives, and we will see how that is supposed to go. But I do think that um, when Rich Lowry ends his piece, and it is entitled In Defense of Elon Musk, he points out uh, Musk, a kind of libertarian who has a puckish sense of humor and willingness to defy authority, just ask the SEC, rejects this thoughtless and often cowardly conformity that uh, Rich Lowry sees with social media in general. Like podcaster Joe Rogan, another recent target of progressive ire, his fundamental offense is being uncategorizable and willing to question conventional wisdom. Like Dave Chappelle or J.K. Rowling, he's too rich and famous to be canceled or cowed. To be more precise, uh, he's the richest man in the world who enjoys a public fight and genuinely disdains the censors and the scolds. All of this makes him a very dangerous man indeed, and perhaps just the guy to make the statement against intimidation and in favor of speech, free speech that the moment so desperately needs. Now, concerning the dangers of free speech, uh, there is a, uh, uh, a big article, a very lengthy article, that uh, is nuanced and detailed and well-researched. Uh, it appeared in the Seattle Times. The headline is The Culture Wars Next Frontier Public Libraries. And it uh, starts by talking about a 54-year-old local church volunteer in Texas who um, says it came to, she wrote in to her local library saying, it came to my attention a few weeks ago that pornographic filth has been discovered at the Lano Library. I'm not advocating for any book to be censored, but to be relocated to the adult section, she wrote. It is the only way I can think of to prohibit censorship of books I do agree with, mainly the Bible. If more radicals come to town and want to use the fact that we censored these books against us. Uh, the books that she wanted um, Behind the Counter included bestsellers like Between the World and Me by journalist Tahanisi Coates, an exploration of the country's history written as a letter to his adolescent son. Uh, not long ago, the county's chief librarian sent a list to Suzette Baker, head of one of the library's three chances, uh, uh, branches. And the, the point about this is that there are people who are wanting to limit the kind of books uh, that are also on the list of uh, books to be not used for curriculum studies, at least according to a lot of the people that object to CRT. Is this a liberty-destroying urge of censorship or uh, a necessary response from the public? We will get to that and much more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.